Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance and may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principal. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance, and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed, and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purposes only, and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi everyone, we hope you're having a very happy new year and welcome back to TVP. We're kicking off 2024 with a very fun episode featuring some of our favorite guests. Author and director of research at St. James's Place, Joe Wiggins, will play our host slash moderator today in a quality versus value debate between Simon Hallett, the former CIO of Hardening Lovner and owner of Plymouth Argyle Football Club, and Andy Evans, a portfolio manager at Schroeder's. In this episode, we want to explore how two different investors think about markets and assets from their own perspective. They also discuss some pain points of being a quality or a value investor and what sort of temperament you may need for each style. In this conversation or debate, they will cover how Andy and Simon define their own way of investing, how to assess a fund manager's style by looking at their top 10 holdings as well as their emotional reactions, difficulties extending time horizons, how would each fund manager manage money on the other side of the style spectrum, and finally the answer if your typical investable universe suddenly became unusually expensive, how would you deal with that and would you compromise on quality or valuation? Enjoy. Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast. We're very pleased to have two former guests back on the show, Joe Wiggins and Simon Hallett. Uh, before we proceed, maybe uh, we could just catch up with how you've been getting on. You're, you're both now veterans of the show, I think. Uh, so, Joe, maybe we'll start with you. Since the last time you were on, I think you were just in the process of releasing a book. How's that gone down? It's gone well. I haven't sold enough copies to retire to a, to a desert island, but more than just my immediate family members have bought it, so I'm, I'm happy. Excellent. There's a, a nice plug for you there as well. And Simon, any other developments? You had a grandchild, I think, last time we, we spoke, and Plymouth Argyle were, were flying high in the league. How, how are things going on your side? Going well on both counts, thanks. Plymouth Argyle were promoted to the championship, which uh, we're now enjoying, and the grandchild is uh, thriving, now six months old. Um, I've also been spending time reading and promoting Joe with his uh, helping Joe with his book sales, which uh, I would recommend to everybody. 
Fantastic. Two plugs. That's a very good going. So this actually comes about uh, from some of our past conversations. And uh, Simon, you were very uh, kind to interview me for the Meet the Manager series. And, and we were talking afterwards about how when value and growth are discussed, they're often pitched against each other. And we've definitely done presentations where you have someone from value from our team and someone from growth. And the, the actual background can be quite adversarial rather than exploring the differences and, and the similarities in a, in a more conducive manner. So we thought it would actually be quite good to have a chat. And uh, Joe has very kindly stepped in to be uh, the compare of this, hopefully not turning into a UN peacekeeper at any point in time. But Joe, may, maybe over to you so you can allow the conversation between myself and Simon on value versus growth. Great, thank you. So I think there are, there are two types of investor. There are valuation-based investors and there are momentum-based investors. So valuation-based investors invest in something because they think the price is fundamentally wrong for some reason. And that could be a, a myriad of, of different reasons, quality-orientated, growth-orientated, valuation or value-orientated. But they think that there's something fundamentally incorrect in the, in the price. Momentum-based investors buy things because they think the price will go up. So it's a, a number-go-up approach. And I think most people are momentum investors, even if they don't admit that they're momentum investors, they, they trade on, on price, on short-term trends and, and narratives. But there are, there are some investors that, that invest based on, on fundamentals and the, the valuation of those fundamentals. And I think Simon and Andy would both fall into that, into that category. Um, but I think when you talk about valuation, people automatically assume it's some kind of value investing approach or contrarian approach. But there can be, as I said, a number of reasons why people would identify valuation anomaly or find a security fundamentally attractive. So I think within that we can think about a number of distinct approaches and and tell you we've got Andy whose approach is much more value or recovery orientated uh, and Simon's approach which has been historically much more quality orientated and I'll let them explain in a bit more detail their philosophy on that um, but they are very very distinct but they're both looking for in a sense for securities that are I think fundamentally mispriced in some way. Um, I think that Another good way of defining this this distinction is to think of of Warren Buffett, which is an interesting um, jumping off point for most investment discussions. And people talk about Warren Buffett's investment approach as if it is one singular thing, but uh, I think it's a it's a spectrum, and certainly one that has evolved through time. So I think at one end of the spectrum, you've got the Ben Graham cigar butt approach, uh, which is much more uh, what we might call value or recovery style investing and the other end of the spectrum and probably what's happened through time is more about buying good quality businesses with competent management at a sensible price and then holding them through time and I think Andy and Simon sit somewhere probably on that spectrum and, and Andy where do you think your approach sits on that on that spectrum? Yeah I think we you, you defined us quite correctly that we're definitely down at the Ben Graham end of the spectrum. I say down, it could also be up at the, the Ben Graham end of the spectrum. But but I think if we're talking about Buffett, we probably align more closely with the earlier part of his period. So he obviously saw Ben Graham when he was at Columbia Business School. He worked with, with Ben Graham at the, the Graham-Newman partnership. And then if you looked at his first partnership, which he ran during the 60s, it was very much run in the style of Ben Graham traditional statistical value. Um, and that's probably the the approach that we follow. And, and then it was really when Charlie Munger came on the scene that his approach changed to something a little bit different and probably more similar to what Berkshire Hathaway looks like t today. 
So yeah, we're very much aligned with the early career Buffett. And Simon, where would you say that that you sit? Uh, I think that's a very good way of framing it. Um, you know, by defining people who care about price versus uh, price, the price value relationship versus people who are merely observing price and forecasting price changes, you've eliminated quite a large part of today's marketplace and put us in roughly the same camp. As you say, it's a spectrum. We, we think of value as being on the left and growth being on the right. And value, as you say, being the original Ben Graham uh, cigar butt buying assets at a discount. Uh, buying assets at a significant discount, whereas you know growth can be as far as companies that simply have an idea that they want to take to marketplace and believe that you know cash flows will grow a long time into into the future. We align ourselves very much with later Berkshire Hathaway in the you know Charlie Munger camp that not all value is about assets and discounts to assets. That it is sometimes worth paying for cash flows that are going to be along be generated a long time into the future so yeah yeah so we we look upon ourselves neither we, we actually look upon it as value being on the left uh, extreme growth being on the right and we we are we tend towards the right hand side of that spectrum but we do not invest in the very very high growth part of that spectrum we tend to be in companies with uh, cash flows that are above average, but very durable. So we look upon ourselves as really on the right-hand side, but not all the way to the right. So one of the, the rules of thumb I have for understanding how someone invests is to look at their top 10 holdings and then assess what my emotional reaction is to those top 10 holdings. So if I look at a cigar bar or recovery style approach, more akin to Andy's approach, then generally I would feel horrified that someone could hold those companies and think Andy's an idiot forever considering holding them. And then when I reflect on that, I think I can understand why there might be a premium there because people are uncomfortable investing in those sorts of names. Um, and from your perspective, Simon, I guess I would look at the holdings of more durable companies and be quite comfortable and content that sensible things are being done in the portfolio. And given that, why do you think a premium might exist for, for doing that? Well, so, you know, our basic belief about markets is that they are efficient, but they're roughly efficient, but not entirely so. And that inefficiencies are caused by behavioural issues amongst various classes of investors. When we started our firm some 35 years ago, we were investing in ways that we thought was consistent essentially with our personalities. Uh, we tend to be you know, rather risk averse. We tend to be rather conservative people, but we also tend to be very patient and we tend to value the impacts of compounding returns over very long periods of time. That led us to companies that we thought had you know, durable competitive positions that were well managed, that didn't go out and do foolish things with the cash flows they were generated, but rather looked for internal re reinvestment opportunities uh, in a way that would compound shareholder returns over very long periods of time. As the decades have gone by, it turned out that we weren't just buying high quality companies, we were actually investing in the quality factor. But we, we had no idea about that at the time. We were just trying to buy a bunch of good companies, keep an eye on them and hope that they would compound over long periods. I think what we're getting paid for is for ignoring the noise that is generated in in markets and by avoiding the bias that we have towards action. So essentially, we're getting paid for being rather dull. Um, the kind of companies that we invest in 
mostly, I mean, I'm not saying that it's exclusively this way, but on average, the kind of companies that we invest in are not the uh, hottest stocks in any particular year, but rather they tend to be the outperformers over much longer periods. So I think that the premium that we're capturing is really to do with not being fashionable, not being momentum oriented. And essentially, you're getting you're getting paid to watch paint dry rather than to be what I'll crudely call entertained by the holdings you have in your portfolio. It reminds me of that study, which may be entirely spurious, but I'll use it anyway, where the experimenters put some people or put a person in a room with nothing to do apart from uh, give themselves an electric shock. And most people prefer to start giving themselves electric shock than just sit there and, and do nothing. And so it does feel like quality investing could be some some kind of reward for, for boredom. Andy, what do you think the, the main pain points are for being a, a value investor, not just over the last 10 years? Yeah. No, I, I, I think actually there's some similarities to some degree with, with what Simon was saying in, in terms of not listening to the noise, but probably for slightly different reasons. And you, you obviously touched on it when you said, if you look at our top 10, you know, lots of people would be horrified by, by what's in there. And, and that's some of the point. And what we're trying to get to in terms of the inefficiency is that people go through cycles of both fear and greed. And we're, we will deal with companies when they're going through the fearful stage where people are very concerned about their near-term prospects. And so by ignoring that noise and investing against the crowd, that's where we, we have the, the opportunity, we think, to be making money from, from the market in, in what's um, a situation where the market can be efficient in many, many points of the time. But we think in that situation, it, it is inefficient. And that's why we can do well. And what type of temperament do you think you need to, to be a value investor in the, in the way that you, you are? Yeah, so I, I think first and foremost, if you're going against the crowd, there has to be an element of contrarian streak and there has to be that desire to be willing to stand up to what the perceived wisdom is. So I, th- I think there definitely has to be an element of contrarianism first and foremost. The second is that you're looking at companies going through adverse conditions, they're going through tough times. So again, there has to be an element of resilience or ability to sit through those tough times and see your way to, to better times. But there's also one which I would actually define as kind of probably not what people would associate with, with value investors. I think value investors at our end of the spectrum are pitched very much as the skeptics or the curmudgeons, the people who you know, will, will frown upon future growth plans or people who are incredibly optimistic. And, and actually, strangely, and Andrew Lydon on our team talks about this, we have to be some of the most optimistic people in the room. When a company's going through a tough time, everyone's given up on them and everyone hates that company. We're the people, we're the optimists of last resort almost. We're the people who are prepared to back the management team or prepared to back that company to turn around. And so there actually has to be an element of willingness to be quite optimistic on the future in certain cases of time, which I don't think everyone normally associates with with value investors. Contrarian optimists. Contrarian optimists would be a, a wonderful definition, yeah. And Simon, um, just reflecting on your own experiences and, and the people you've worked with and hired through your career, are there are there common traits or characteristics that you think are uh, more aligned to the, the, the quality-orientated approach that you want to adopt? I think everybody in investing needs to be contrarian, at least to some extent. You know, I think it's Howard Marks who's talked in the past that to make a investment decision that generates excess return, you need to be both right but you also need to be different from the marketplace. So I hope that the people that we've hired and that we've employed over the years also share that 
ability to be contrarian. I fully take Andy's point, though, that in some ways the the the, the value investor at the left-hand end of the spectrum are the remaining optimists. And I think at our end of the spectrum, we need to guard against excessive optimism. You know, we do believe that the past is in some some sense at least prelude to the future that a company with a 50-year track record and has you know if it survived 50 years it's then there is some indication that a company has the qualities that are needed to survive in difficult circumstances and that you can to some extent extrapolate the past into the future whilst whilst recognizing that's dangerous i think that that's really where the optimism at our uh, end of the spectrum lies. But the need to be contrarian, I think, is a universal attribute of any successful investor. Yeah, that's interesting. Thank you. Um, one thing that I think you've both aligned on and which I bore people with all the time is the importance of, of time horizons and how, how myopic the investment industry has, has become. And I think it's fair to say that if you're right about your approach being successfully applied, then you need a long time horizon to, to benefit from that how do you think you can go about extending your time horizon to appropriate lengths in an industry that really cares about what happened over the last quarter? It's incredibly difficult, I think, is the, the first thing to say. I think there are two important elements to that. What One is support of either a company or, or a parent who understands what you're doing, and, and also likewise with clients. So it's the communication with both and the understanding from both the client side and also the uh, the companies that... Um, you're doing something which may take some time and it could be out of favour for periods of time. Um, and so we, we always talk about our history and heritage at, at Schroeder's that Schroeder's been doing value investing since 1970, that that's when the UK Recovery Fund started. So there is an understanding that it can be a, fav- a, a style which is in and out of favour. The, the second element is what, what we do to try and overcome the, the noise um, that's in the market. And I think having a very, very strong process is probably uh, the, the best way for you to overcome some of that ignoring of the noise. If you invest in a company with um, a time horizon, which in our case is three to five years, it may be longer in Simon's case, what we set ourselves out for is a recovery in, in that time period. And we will review it, but we understand that every quarter doesn't actually make significant differences to, uh, to that long-term path. And so we're more interested in that long-term path rather than that short-term path. And having that focus allows us to ignore some of that nearer-term noise. And that's the most important element for, for trying to ignore the, the, the noise which is in the market. And just before I go back to Simon, obviously value has gone through a difficult spell, uh, probably longer than a spell, with the bouts of strong performance. But over the last decade or so, it's been more difficult to be a value investor, I think it's fair to say. How much has that led you to, to doubt your approach and reflect on its its ongoing viability? It's interesting. It's actually something which um, when I was chatting with Simon um, on the Meet the Managers uh, podcast, we, we did touch on this a bit. And it would feel quite natural that if things haven't been going your way for quite a prolonged period of time, you would be reviewing or questioning whether they still do work. And... There were a couple of things which uh, I think helped through that time. The, the first is that there is very long-term evidence that, that value investing works. And whilst it, there is the narrative that the past 10 years has been very painful, that the pain ha- actually in when, when the way that we look at value has probably been concentrated on a three to four year period at the back end of the, the decade. 
And if you looked at five-year rolling cycles um, of value performance, that was one of the very few times that five-year periods where value in the style that we talk about it didn't work. And so if there's one one five-year period which didn't work, but many, many which did work, if we stuck to our guns, we thought that, that it would come good. The other element to that was that if you looked at the underlying fundamentals of the business, it was actually not changing significantly from what we've seen in the past. We would be very concerned if all of a sudden all value stocks did very badly from a fundamental perspective and all the other end of the spectrum stocks did very, very well from a fundamental perspective and that gap in performance was justified. When we looked at it, actually what you were seeing was an uh, almost like an elastic band of valuation differential between value companies and growth companies being extended very, very hard. And again, that gave us comfort that if the underlying fundamentals, which is what we're most focused on when analysing companies, were still in place, that we shouldn't be overly concerned that the market was taking a different view at that point in time. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, to some degree in the way that we see it, there has been a bit of a bounce back in those valuations and, and also the relative performance. Yeah, sure. And, and Simon, how do you deal with that challenge of even if you've got a robust investment philosophy and approach, you will inevitably go through periods, extended periods of three or five years when it looks like you're doing something that doesn't work? Yeah, um, I think you have to build the institutional capability you know, as a business to withstand periods of underperformance. Um, you have to be very careful about educating your clients. And yet, you know, we find pretty consistently that, you know, we've now got a 34 track year track record. It's obviously been a good track record, but we've had periods of two or three years where we've been, you know, the bottom quartile manager. And however much we try to make sure that our clients' long-term approach is aligned with ours, we always lose clients at periods of poor performance even if uh, the reasons for losing clients is, is never given as uh, poor short-term performance. So you institutionally, you have to build resilience effectively so that, you know, you can withstand and survive the periods when, you know, your, your assets under management come under pressure uh, as a result of, you know, things that may or may not be within your control. I think the difference between um, being kind of quality and growth oriented is that those periods, certainly in the last 30 years, have not been as long as the periods of underperformance that the uh, value manager has had to has had to withstand. You know, the, the payoff to value as a style has tended to be very brief, very abrupt, but very significant. So, you know, you've had to withstand, you know, very many years of the style generating sub-market returns. And therefore, I think it's incredibly difficult to build um, institutional resilience. And I think that, you know, the the way that um, Andy's described the, the Schroeder's value team as being nestled within a larger institution that, you know, essentially is much more diversified by style is probably the most effective way to go. You know, I think for most value investors, you know, the, the number of value investors such as, you know, the those that Andy has described who can survive you know, a 10 year period of the style being out of fashion are, are, are very few as far as I know. So, you know, I think I, I think being an independent value investor is even more difficult than being a, 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 than being 
in you know where, where we are as an independent quality and growth type investor. So you know the, the institutional wrapper that the investment process is contained in, I think, is is absolutely critical. Um, apart from that, I think it's very important that you know you you train the people and that the kind of people who join the firm and are you know creating the investment process, creating the investment decisions. Um, are aware that you know there will be periods when you know their compensation isn't going to be what they would hope it was going to be in the long term, and that they are able to take you know a view about both the decisions they make and about their own lives that can withstand these periods of uh, underperformance. So you know the 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 long time horizon is just as important if you are trying to invest in companies that are compounding returns over very long periods of time, as it is, I think, in in being a value investor, you know, waiting for essentially the tide to the tide to turn. Yeah. So, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Joe, that, you know, time horizon is critical. It requires people with the personality to with to withstand the noise of markets and it requires institutional robustness. Well, thank you. And if I, if I said to you for the next five years, you need to run your portfolio at the other end of the of the Buffett spectrum. So you had to buy more companies that were um, akin to how. So I'm an investor, more quality companies, more compounding companies. What would you see as the main challenge for you in running money in that way? So I think first and foremost is that because I've wedded myself so much to the style that I have, that the way that I, I look companies is always through that prism that the way that I research companies the way I think about risks so they're very much set up for the value part of the market so that the scariest part would be to taking that hat off and looking at a company at the, at the other end of the spectrum and I think probably the things that would concern me most of all would be the ability to see either a above average growth rate or an above average return being achieved further into the future, because that, that would naturally go against my instincts, which are more mean reverting when I'm looking at a company. I think that's probably the, the element that I'll be most scared of, and, and also having to extrapolate that quite far into the distance to make sure that I've got the gap relative to, uh, to, to consensus. But, but if consensus are like me and they like to fade things down, which I think is some of the elements of, of what Simon's looking to exploit, I could see why, why that would work for, for certain investors. And Simon's flipped the question, you've already in part answered this, but if you were uh, forced to adopt a more recovery-orientated value approach, what would you see as the, the key challenges? Um, it, would be, it would be commercial survival. You know, as an independent value investor, I think, you know, surviving for five years is, would be extremely difficult. From a personal point of view, when it comes to making the investments, I don't find investing in assets at a discount as interesting as investing in companies whose products I can think about and whose success I can extrapolate into the future. It's purely my personality, I think, you know, that um, I think there's a certain personality associated with being deep value and being quality oriented. And that there are some commonalities. We have to be contrarian. We have in particular to be, you know, we have to be thoughtful about our uh, forecasting. We have to think probabilistically. We, we all suffer from the same kinds of biases. But, you know, I enjoy the idea of um, finding companies that have pretty 
stable earnings growth. They have good balance sheets that, you know, they they are high quality companies. I, I simply find that more fascinating than investing in assets at a discount. And, uh, you know, the, the whole value investing thing I, is of interest, you know, because I think I think uh, the way that Andy's team go about it is is you know the way that I w- I would want to go about it if I were a value investor, but you know it does require incredible patience, and I th- I think if I'm correct, it's a few years since I read the Intelligent Investor, but I think I think it's in the Intelligent Investor where you know Ben Graham talks about how you buy assets at a discount, but then if after uh, 18 months, I think it's 18 months, the um, discount hasn't um, uh, narrowed, you should move on to the next investment opportunity. And I think it's that kind of thinking that has led to the concept of value investing with catalysts. You know, I'd rather that the growth of a company was relatively unvolatile, relatively predictable. And I think that reflects a kind of rather, <laughs> rather nervous, risk-averse personality that I happen to have. If I was doing a, a top 10 or maybe a bottom 10 of my least favourite words in, in investing, it'd be stiff competition, but Catalyst would definitely be in there. Um, and, uh, Andy, I'm sure you get asked this all the time about Catalyst. What, what's, yeah. your, what's your view on, on Catalyst? Yeah, so it is something we get asked about all the time. And the, the simple truth is the way that we, we look to research companies is that we're looking at a company which is going through a tough time. We're saying, can they get through that tough period of time and see their way to a, a better period of time and what, what are the probabilities of us being right and what happens if we go wrong and stress testing the, the, the downside. So th- this goes back to the, the classic thing of margin of safety. If we think that the margin of safety, that there's enough upside to compensate us for the risks, well, that, that's good enough for us where we are. If there were catalysts, we think that that margin of safety would be lessened, that people would have worked it out, that there would already be a reason why the share price uh, would, would reflect more or have a smaller discount to what the fair value of the company was. So what whilst it's incredibly difficult because people want to hear, well, why is it going to go right and is it going to go right tomorrow? The simple answer is if we knew those things, then we wouldn't be offered, be offered the opportunity. And so it comes back to the patience and the willingness to, to wait um, for the right opportunity to come along. And often the catalysts which we think are going to be the thing which closes the gap are often very, very different. And so you've got to be prepared that unexpected things happen. And if you're paying low enough price, they can be unexpected and positive many of the time. Great, thank you. I'm going to ask you both the same question now, and I'll start with Simon. If, if your typical investable universe, the types of companies that you, you invest in, became unusually expensive, um, how would you deal with that? And if you had to make a compromise, would you be compromising on, on quality or would you be compromising more on, on valuation? Uh, well, I can answer that empirically that we've compromised more on valuation. Again, you know, we're, you know, if we, as I mentioned earlier, you know, we started off investing in a way that we thought was appropriate for us, a way that we enjoyed, a way that we thought would generate, you know, long-term returns above those of the market for our clients. And it turned out that we were capturing a quality premium. As this quality premium has become increasingly recognized, high quality companies have traded increasingly expensive relative to the market. I mean, it used to be that if you focused on quality and reasonable growth, you you were ending up with a portfolio that traded at a discount to, you know, point-oriented market 
prices, by which I mean, you know, price to sales, price to book, price to earnings and so on. That's no longer the case. And, you know, we have been, I think the phrase we've occasionally used has been valuation tolerant, partly because we recognize the difficulty in forecasting future earnings streams. So there has been some compromise on uh, valuation. Thank you, Andy. Same question, June. I appreciate it's slightly different because of the, your, your value approach. But if, if we saw an environment where the value dispersion was was very narrow, how would you how would you alter your your approach? Yeah. So, so I, again, I, I think, and, and it would be very understandable. We, we would probably do the opposite to Simon, which is that we wouldn't compromise on on value. That we'd always want to make sure that we're not accepting valuation risk. The 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 closing of the gap is is kind of an interesting thing because I, I think it would be more that the harder thing would be explaining to people this may not be the most interesting time to invest in this style um, if we really thought that genuinely the, the value past the market was more expensive than it should be. I think that's probably the toughest thing to contend with that you we shouldn't be telling people that, that that's a good thing to do. Now for, fortunately or unfortunately we, we haven't got to the situation where we've had to explain that to people but it would be an interesting point in time when that does come along. The, the only other thing I, w- I would say is that uh, there's something which we think probably gets underestimated by value, and that's that the set of companies which we can invest in changes quite significantly over time. And so at certain points in time, we may be offered slightly higher quality companies because of the nature of where we are in the cycle. It could be that at other points in time, we're offered low quality, but the, the nature of, and the type of company that we can invest in can change quite a lot over a cycle. And so at any point in time, we may be offered very, very different opportunities. And I think that's a little bit different from other parts of the market where the opportunity is probably more static in terms of the nature of the companies that you invest in. Yeah, you're either focused on the fundamentals of the business and or the pricing of the fundamentals of that business, and that can be quite quite different. Simon, I mean, you mentioned... I, I th- I, yeah, sorry, if I could, Jeff. I, I think that's a really interesting one. And I think that if we'd gone back 20 years we would have noticed that the overlap in holdings between you know, a Harding-Lovner portfolio and a Schroeder's Value Group portfolio would have been much greater than it is today. Uh, that would be an interesting exercise to carry out, but I, I, would, I would posit that you know, the, the overlap has narrowed as the years have gone by and as the quality premium in particular has become increasingly recognised by the marketplace. I think, I think that's exactly right, but particularly coming out of the dot-com period where you know consumer staples for example um were, were yeah. incredibly attractively priced and yeah you, the, the overlap would have been quite significant i think that's that's exactly right yeah we i sorry to reminisce but i remember writing a piece in the first quarter of 2003 in the depths of the market it was one of the errors we made as quality growth investors in our in the last one of the biggest errors we made in the last 30 years was that we, for, on a very rare occasion in the, at the end of the first quarter of 2003, wrote a piece about how cheap non-US equity markets were. We very rarely have a view about the cheapness of overall markets. And we responded to that by you know, increasing our holdings of the Nestle's in the world at precisely the wrong time. So you know, strangely for us, we got the market call right and got the execution very badly wrong because high quality companies were very very underpriced relative to their history but relative to the junkier side the deep value part of the market sure pardon me <laughs> putting that phrase phrase in but i'm sorry i don't mean to 
uh, conflate the two, but the junkier part of the market uh, massively outperformed, and we had a period of very significant underperformance despite um, increasing the quality in the portfolios. Sam, you mentioned a couple of times about quality as a, as a factor or a, a premium that can be captured through time. Can you just talk about what that means for you in running a quality strategy and also running a, a non-systematic or discretionary quality strategy? I suppose the question would be, what's the advantage of doing it in a way where there is human judgment intervention relative to just trying to capture that systematically? The ultimate question. So the way we look upon it, we look upon our investment philosophy as having three legs. We focus on quality, we focus on growth, and we care about the difference between price and valuation that we focused on today. So we think about it as having three legs, and the judgment involved is in balancing those three. So there will be times when we compromise a little bit on growth in favor of quality, sometimes when we compromise a bit on valuation in favor of growth. But that ultimately has been a judgment call. Having said that, the arc of Harding Lovner's investment process over the last uh, nearly three and a half decades has been in favor of more, more, a more systematic approach. So we're, we're very much still at the point where our investment process requires judgment by analysts and portfolio managers, but that judgment has been increasingly constrained over the last over the last 20, 25 years. So that we believe that there is a role for judgment in playing off the three legs of our investment philosophy, but that there's very much a role for systematic rules-based investing as well. And you know, we've often talked about comparing a systematic value strategy uh, with, your, with your own approach to, to value. Um, what, what's your thoughts on the on the issue? Yeah, so, so in a similar way to how Simon talked about it, we have a building block and that building block is the, the value premium. We, we know there's plenty and plenty of evidence out there, starting with farmer and French and going forward with, with lots and lots of academic evidence that there is a value premium to be taken from the market. And we think it exists, as we said before, because of the way that humans behave. So you... you just investing in the value style, you, you should do okay. What we then do on top of that is to look at the distribution of returns that you get from the value style. And what, what we tend to find is that there is a, a left tail, value traps. And our process is set up to try and minimise the number of times that we have value traps. So on average, when we've looked over the past 20 years or so, on under a certain definition, probably about 15 to 20% of companies fall into value trap status. And our process is to try and lower that that number and therefore add uh, performance above and beyond just, just the value factor itself. And th there's evidence that process has played out over time. I'm sure Andy hates hearing um, the phrase value traps. I'm sure he gets asked about it all the time. Um, so, so I'm going to ask you, are there such a thing as quality traps in your style of investing and how would you think about those? Well, I think there are both quality and growth traps. And I think the most dangerous of those is actually the growth trap. You know, the, you know, I, I talked about personalities and Andy uh, talked about the need for um, being rather sceptical, for being prepared to be contrarian. And I think the biggest danger for a growth investor in particular is, you know, the noise in markets, the pressure to join the herd, the pressure to extrapolate recent success, to believe the stories that people spin about 
very fast growth companies. So the way we think about both quality and growth is actually very similar to the way Andy described it. So, you know, we look upon the companies that are available in our universe as being on, you know, on a, let's say they're normally distributed. And our job is to kind of tilt the distribution slightly in favor of being, uh, uh, in, in favor of being correct. So when we when we develop an investment thesis, uh, we obviously believe that uh, if we end up buying the stock in the company, we believe that that stock is going to generate an excess return. But we we fully recognize two things. Firstly, that the number of decisions we get wrong is very significant. You know, we over our history have only got a little over fifty percent of our um, decisions right. And quite often we're right for the wrong reasons. So what we're trying to do by emphasizing quality and growth, and in particular by emphasizing track records of companies, is to tilt that slightly in our favor. And quite often we'll be right for the wrong reasons. So, you know, we're trying to tilt the element of luck, if you like, slightly in our favor. But we very much, again, look upon it as a as a di- distribution. And we look upon it. So our job is really to kind of tilt it, tilt luck in our favor. Uh, which is a little bit different from Andy's job, which is to make sure that they're not investing in the left-hand tail. And just to, to finish up, and if you were assessing the, the quality approach to investing, what would be the important takeaways for you in terms of how you run your value strategies? Where, where are the disciplines useful or, or complementary? Uh, from from a, a taking a growth or quality so you're taking your value approach and, and looking what what simon does what, what would your takeaways be from that and where is their their consistency or um complementarity yeah, so i think the consistency will come from uh avoidance of behavioral biases so i, I think we when you hear us both talk we're, we're trying to avoid some of the worst things which are going to cause you to make bad decisions and whether that's avoiding the narratives or avoiding overconfidence or avoiding the noise, so recency bias. I think all these things would be useful if you're a value investor or if you're a quality or growth investor. So I think that's true. I think the ability to block the noise out and to be resilient over time to make sure that you're you have confidence in in what you're doing. So I think I think there's a common set of traits that you need to do if you're both a value investor and a, and a growth investor, um, and and actually probably more things which are similar define us than are different that define us, even though we're always pitched as two ends of the spectrum doing something incredibly different. And Simon, in an effort to be um, diversified in terms of your your career and the funds that you invest in, do you hold exposure to deeper value strategies in your personal investments? No, no, I don't. (laughs) (laughs) I'm, I'm I'm, I'm all in. It's um, it, it's I, th- I think you framed it correctly at the beginning, Joe, you know, that there are two kinds of investors, really. There are people who care about price and there are people who, uh, there are people who care about the price to value relationship, which includes value investors such as Andy. It includes uh, growth and quality investors such as Harding Lovner. But then there there's a whole separate uh, class of investors and that's the biggest distinction the people who are trying to forecast stock prices as opposed to f- forecast future cash flows and the price you know and relate that to the price the market's offering to pay for you, pay for it i think the biggest difference though between the kind of psychology of investing in deep value and the psychology of investing in high quality 
is that it's very, very easy in the case of high quality to become comfortable. And it's something that we try to resist at Harding Lovner. You know, we all know that one of the biggest biases that we haven't really talked about is, you know, the the both confirmation bias and I think Andy did mention actually uh, uh, overconfidence. Um, but, you know, we are constantly um, being asked to have holdings in which we have high conviction and we're asked, are you comfortable with your earnings forecast? And I think that's something that we try very hard to resist. It's very, very easy to become comfortable investing in uh, high quality companies. And I think, you know, that discomfort is rather something that in which we should be investing, it should be a kind of source of the return premium. And I think that that's something that uh, value investors are much better at embracing than quality and growth investors. So I think the quality investors need to force themselves to become less comfortable value investors. Need exactly. To force themselves to become more comfortable in holding things that um, uh, can look pretty um, pretty uncomfortable at certain certain points. And in in terms of your your career and portfolio diversification, do you own some quality orientated equity strategies? I, I don't know, like like Simon, all in 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 what we do. I think one interesting thing, and I haven't felt or experienced it recently, we started with Warren Buffett. Warren Buffett went through a process of being value quite similar to what we're doing here at Schroeder's and, and moved to the, the, the more quality end of things. It seems that that's a common trodden path by investors. And that, that kind of intrigues me that people do go through that process. Um, I haven't had that um, that experience or that road to Damascus for a moment, but... Um, It'll be interesting if that ever did come along and how I would I would deal with that. There was a recent study, I think by Vanguard, that looked at the equity allocations of different people of different ages, um, depending on when you when you started your investing life. So whatever you'd experienced in terms of equity market returns tend to frame how high your equity allocation was. So if you started investing following a bull market and that kind of the narrative around long-term strength of equity returns, you'd hold more equities. And then if you started investing after a really difficult period, then you'd have a much lower structural allocation to equities. And so I wonder now if we've got a big cohort of investors who are high growth investors um, rather than rather than value investors because we've been through a period where generally it's been much more difficult to take the more contrarian angle. I mean, I, I started just after the, the dot-com bust so on that basis i don't think i'd have any money in the uh, in the equity market if that if that would hold true but being a true contrarian i have far more uh, of equity allocation than uh, maybe is even sensible but if that's the job i'm i'm doing then that's um i think the, the right way to be i plead guilty as charles joe uh, i started in 1979 and was in the industry a couple of years before the bull market started in you know the early 1980s in august 1982 i think so yeah i i've spent my entire career in a period of basically disinflation lower long-term growth uh lower long-term uh uh risk-free rates and essentially despite punctuations in 1987 2000 and 2007 it's been a fantastic time to invest and i'm a believer in the cults of the equity yeah Thank you very much both. I think what's come across in this conversation is that there are clearly distinctions in, in approach and, and beliefs and, and temperament for quality-orientated investors and, and deeper value-orientated investors, um, but they are both focusing on fundamentals characteristics rather than momentum characteristics in in, in different ways and, and different investors with 
contrasting temperaments will have and be more suited to extracting those those returns through time. Thank you very much for, for comparing us. No Thank you, Simon. Thank you. Thanks, both of you.